Thank you so much. That seemed very appropriate to shape our hearts, our thoughts, processes as we're looking into God's Word today. And I'd like you to take your Bibles with me now, and we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, down through verse 18. Reflect upon these verses and to seek God as we're going to end this entire series that was begun in the month of September as we were seeking to find a book of the Bible that was very focused upon the explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians is such a book. And now in chapter 6, beginning with verse 11, down through verse 18, you and I find these words. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do so is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your faith. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. You go by so many different titles, my Lord. And one of them is the great physician. Throughout these services, three in the morning, the fourth, fun of the evening, we have people that gather together who find that to be incredibly comforting. That the one who experienced and endured such pain is the one who is known as the great physician that you would be guiding and directing the medical personnel as they work through next steps. But what we're praying, Father, is a great work of the Holy Spirit. We realize, Father, these are opportunities for the church to come together in very unique ways, which this church has done repeatedly through the various times in which it seems as though the unknowns have made their way into this fellowship and have affected various families in very critical medical matters. And there has been a certain amount of youthfulness to these medical matters through these recent years. What we're praying, Father, is that the Holy Spirit be a source of protection upon each of the families of this church, that there be such a ministry of heart to one another 
and that we encourage each other as the Spirit leads. Our Father, now as we look into your word, what we're praying is that your word guide us and direct us in our thought processes to be able to get beyond ourselves, to think beyond ourselves, to focus our attention upon the one who died for our sins. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus. Him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ellen Vaughn, who has written many books in conjunction with the late Chuck Colson, tells a tremendous story of an interview that she had with a pastor who had made his way into Cambodia to minister the gospel in various tribes. It seems as though in September of 1999, when he traveled to Cambodia, he came upon a village that had been, through the years, caught up in Buddhism and Spiritism. And Christianity had been basically unheard of. When he arrived in one particular small village, the people greeted him warmly, embraced him and the gospel of Jesus Christ thoroughly. One of the women who shuffled forward toward him bowed, grasped his hands, and said, We have been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of, quote, the mysterious God who hung on the cross. Unquote. For you see, in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist regime, took over Cambodia, destroying everything in its path. And when the soldiers finally descended upon this particular rural community, in 1979, they rounded up the villages and forced them to start to dig their own graves. And after the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some screamed to Buddha. Others screamed to demon spirits or to their ancestors. But one of the women started to cry for help based upon a childhood memory. A story that her mother had told her about a God who had hung on a cross. And the woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross. Surely if this God had known suffering, he would have compassion on their plight. Suddenly, her solitary cry became one great wall as the entire village started praying to the God who had suffered and hung on a cross. As they continued facing their graves, they, the wailing slowly died down to a quiet cry. 
There was this eerie silence in that muddy, muddy, muggy jungle. Slowly, as they did to turn around to face their armed captors, they discovered that the soldiers were gone. As the now elderly woman finished telling this story, she told Pastor that ever since that humid day, the villagers had been waiting, waiting, waiting for someone to come and to share the rest of the story about that God who hung on a cross. What Paul has done in six brilliant chapters is to elucidate the gospel of Jesus Christ as he describes the centrality of the cross and the one who hung there in our place. And now as he reaches the pinnacle, the top of the mountain, in his writings to the people of Galatia, what he now does in summary form is to draw off for you and for me five distinctive marks found in and among believers worldwide who are committed to keeping Christ's cross central to our lives. Let's check them out. Number one, by keeping Christ's cross central, believers are marked by what we will describe here as persecution for Christ, being persecuted for the Lord. For emphasis now, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes these words. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Notice how dramatically now he arrests your attention with that very first word, see. A visual word for a verbal expression. See what large letters I use. For you see in that time period of letter writing, when one wanted to use an exclamation point, they would use capitalization. What Paul now is doing to stress that which is of first importance He says, now you see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? His secretary, known in that time period as an amanuensis, sets down the pen. Paul picks up the pen and continues with his final thought processes as illumined by the Holy Spirit and wants us to understand not only the degree to which this is being emphasized, but also the manner to which this is being personalized. It's my own hand. The cross is central, so central to Paul. Is it for you? 
Having arrested our attention now, he moves us into verse 12. And what I want you to see here is this whole matter of the mark of persecution for Christ. Think globally with me as he sets up a contrast. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Pause there. These are religious people that are attempting now to gain the attention, not the secularists attempting to gain the attention, of these Galatian believers. They are known in the New Testament as Judaizers. They would hound Paul repeatedly as he would move from one setting to another. And they would argue that human works need to be added to Christ's work on the cross in order to be acceptable before God. You and I know that means then that the sinful ones are adding their works to the sinless one, in essence making the argument that what Jesus did on that cross was insufficient in the eyes of God the Father. Paul calls their bluff. What he wants us to be able to see here is the tremendous pressure these religionists are placing upon the true believer, which is the same pressure that happens in Iran, the same pressure that happens in Iraq, the same pressure that happens in Afghanistan, the same pressure in that small but fledgling group of believers in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in Indonesia and so forth. And what Paul wants us to see is how the religionists will go out of way in order for us to be able to create this external form of religious appearance, and they will compel. Mark that word in verse 12, because it carries with the idea of a military pressurized thrust, moving into new territory, attempting to conquer And now what Paul is saying is be alert of this forward movement against your soul. In this case, the objective being to add to Christ's work on the cross. They're saying in essence with their arguments, what Jesus did was was unsatisfactory. We need to add our works to his to make this complete. He calls their bluff. For you see, if you'll notice very carefully what he goes on to utilize to describe them, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Notice then, their objective is the avoidance of persecution. They're committed to our word impression. They're committed to compelling these believers But the only reason that they are doing this is the avoidance of persecution of the cross of Christ. Compare their avoidance of persecution, which is a form of religious escape, with the acceptance of persecution as seen in the Apostle Paul, who is not one to escape, but rather one to enlist his experiences. And what we see here in the Apostle Paul is that here's a man that is willing for the sake of what he knows to be true to endure it for the cause of Jesus. 
Now, you say, but Gary, I don't live in Afghanistan, and I don't live in Iran. What do I do with this sort of thing in our current 2014 conditions in the U.S.? Think about this. There's Pastor Yosef Narakani, house church leader from the Church of an Iran denomination, convicted of apostasy in November 2010, 2010, sentenced to death by hanging. However, the Supreme Court asked for a retrial of his case in a lower court. A reminder, the pastor was arrested initially in 2009 for allegedly protesting Islamic instruction in schools for his children. The charges were changed to apostasy. During hearings in 2011, Khani was told by authorities he'd be given three opportunities to embrace Islam and renounce his faith in Christianity in order to have the charges removed, but he refused to do so. Ask yourself as you examine your heart, if I were put on trial for my faith, would I refuse to do so? Or Saeed Abedini, U.S. pastor, his wife lives in Boise, Idaho, and not traveling throughout the world, drawing attention to the mistreatment of her husband. For you see, this 33-year-old Abedini was shackled to a hospital bed and ultimately refused surgery for internal bleeding, according to his wife, and due to his imprisonment and the, at the hands of his captors. Now, this American Center for Law and Justice has wisely taken up the case and kept this in front of our political leaders. Saeed needs medical care and treatment, and for the Iranian government to withhold the surgery he so desperately needs is deeply, deeply troubling. The bleeding, of course, is a result of numerous beatings because of his stand for Jesus. When you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're talking with someone who is globally aware of the circumstances and the trends of this world, ask yourself the question, why would such a man as Saeed be willing to endure such beatings, face such hardships, when the natural human tendency is to escape these matters? Why would he have such an inner conviction that it's important to endure, in fact, enlist these beatings, unless he believes this is true? Get the dialogue going. And get people to begin to ask the serious questions. At what point in my life would I be willing to endure, if not even enlist, persecution for what I believe? That belief must be an insurmountable argument. 
to defeat in the eyes of others, and you draw them to the one who endured such beatings for you and me, the one who hung on that cross. You see. We need to be able to create this kind of dialogue and this kind of global atmosphere because it's one of the distinguishing marks of that person who has Jesus Christ central in his work on the cross as primary. Is that where you're at? There's a second distinguishing mark that Paul draws to our attention. Not only persecution for Christ in verse 12, secondly, boasting in Christ, verse 13 and 14. Notice how he phrases things here. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. He spots their inconsistencies, you see. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh, not theirs. In other words, there's some kind of religious statisticians. They're going around counting to see how many people now are truly followers of their teachings as opposed to that of the Apostle Paul. When will religionists ever learn from the census of David and what, and what befell him? But there they are, and they're boasting about your flesh. And here now, what Paul does is to note very carefully what this boast entails. The Greek word carries with the idea of being a glory seeker in public settings. Where the world orbits around self. This boasting in self in verse 13 means that there is what we describe as a prideful distance from Christ's cross. I want you to contrast boasting in self with boasting in the cross of Christ because in verse 14, Paul goes on to write, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, why? How? Through which the world has been crucified to me, past tense, and I to the world. We want to understand what is the crux of Paul's argument, and I utilize that word crux intentionally because it's from the Latin that where we get the word crucifixion. And so we're getting to the crux of the matter here in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that one who hung on the cross as the people in that particular village would learn to embrace. We have two contrasting options here. Boasting in self, a prideful distance from the cross. Boasting in the cross of Christ, which is a humble closeness to that cross. And now here's a practical exercise again for us. Examine where you have been among believers, say, the last month. 
And when the opportunity for a conversation turned in your direction, or in my direction, because I'm putting myself through this process as well, who or what was in the center of my conversational orbit? Was it self or Christ? You say, well, Gary, I can't pepper every sentence with Jesus. No, what we're talking about here is a Christ-centered worldview. A Christ-centered theology for everyday practical life living. Where every sentence, so to speak, if somebody were somehow to start connecting dots, would not be surprised if the dots led him or her back to Jesus. They would not be surprised that if you mention the name Jesus, they would be able to say, well, Christ is obviously the center of that person's personal orbit, public as well as private. You see, there is something about that cross that eliminates pride and yields humility. Even when we're given opportunity to talk about who we are or what we have achieved in life. It was the year 1847, and he was a physician from Edinburgh, James Simpson. Discovered that chloroform could be used as an anesthetic to render people insensitive and sensible to pain of surgery. Made it possible for people to go through the most dangerous operations without the fear of pain and suffering. Well, some years later, while lecturing at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Simpson was asked by one of his students, Sir, what would you consider to be the most valuable discovery of your life, your greatest achievement? They say you could have heard a pin drop. When to the surprise of his students, our biography biographer informs us, who had expected him to refer to chloroform, Dr. Simpson's response was, quote, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered that I am a sinner and that Jesus Christ had died for my sins. Are you focused on that cross. Is the cross of Christ the center of your orbit? Or in conversational gatherings, do you find that this word for boasting has made its way in into your relational approach to everyday living? These are tough questions we pose to the soul. But these are the distinguishing marks of a, a Christ-centered, cross-centered approach day in, day out. Persecution for Christ, verse 12. Boasting in Christ, you see, verse 13, verse 14. Paul Powell, who had been Illinois Secretary of State, had to decide who was going to get auto license plate number one. It's a real problem, he said. 
I'm not about to assign it to someone and, and make a thousand other people feel hurt. You know what his solution was? He assigned it to himself. There is a difficult challenge in being able to truly convey who's number one. But here in this church, it's Jesus. The distinguishing marks of the worldwide fellowship of believers, persecution for Christ in verse 12, boasting in Christ, verse 13 and 14, but thirdly, newness through Christ in verse 15, when now Paul goes on to write, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is, underline this, this is incredible, a new creation. Newness through Christ. You see, religion without Christ is just simply old creation religionism. Secularism is simply old creation secularism. What this world is longing for is something so dramatically, unmistakably new. One of the great teachings of the Scriptures pertains to the idea of God's usage of newness. Newness. For example, there are new mercies every morning, according to Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. For the believer, we embrace the fact that there is a new spirit God has placed in us, according to Ezekiel 11, verse 19. The global religious community has got to understand that God has, in essence, described the gospel as new wine, according to Matthew 9, verse 17. And woe be unto anybody who tries to mingle this with old wineskins. They simply burst which is something the Judaizers were finding happening when Paul would appear on the scene. They couldn't contain this gospel, so they tried to persecute him. Why, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1-4 through speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. Where do we get that from? From the teachings of Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, where those chapters, in essence, are a miniature form of the entire... Book of Revelation, eight centuries prior. Now what God wants to say to you and to me is that we've got to examine very carefully as to whether or not we are simply producing an appearance of new when at the same time we are living with the reality of old. Because these people, as we saw in that verse 12 matter, were concerned with outward impressions, but had not embraced the whole matter of inward reality. What Paul is now saying here is newness flows from the inside out. It begins with a new heart, and it ultimately leads to a glorified body in the future. But this world wants to work from the outside in. But God works from the inside out. 
until ultimately we have new heavens and new earth. You see. So what you also find in your relational orbit are people longing for something new, something different, some way to be able to get beyond the past where the past in its oldest seems to continuously encroach upon what they would hope to be the newness of this particular day. And you bring Jesus in, who's at the center of your orbit. And you bring these principles of newness to their, to their weary soul. And you talk about what it means to be a new creation person. The old has passed away. The new has come. As Paul would write in Second Corinthians 5, verse 17, to echo these words. Have you embraced that? There's a fourth distinguishing mark of those who have Christ's cross central. That fourthly, we're distinguished by obedience to Christ. You see, our faith in Christ reveals itself through our obedience to Christ. And now in verse 16, Paul goes on to write peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. There is such a longing in the hearts of people for this kind of peace. Jews know that the word peace carries with the idea of wholeness. Wholeness. Which begs the question, how do you find wholeness in this world of brokenness? It's another question you can pause when somebody's hurting. And then add to this, this whole idea of the mercy to all who follow this rule. Would you underline that word follow in verse 16? You draw a line back to chapter 5 verse 25 where we describe living by the Spirit as keeping in step with the Spirit, the word follow in the Greek is the very same word for keep in step in chapter 5, verse 25, which we covered last week. In other words, what Paul is now saying for you and me, where the cross of Christ is central to our everyday living, not merely Sunday morning experience, is that this keeping in step with the Spirit, this following, is that in which there is a cadence from the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures and illumines our hearts. This cadence then challenges you and me to keep in step with the commands of God's Word. It was a military term for soldiers. But for those of you that are involved in construction on a daily basis, carpenters, builders, and so on in this congregation, notice that word rule. This word in the Greek carries with the idea of a carpenter's tool, which was utilized to establish a straight line before cutting. So that once cut, things would fit together. 
Now, sometimes in the matter of obedience, we find that there is a cut that is being applied to our lives. The purpose is so that you better fit with the plan, the architectural plan that God has for your life. Disobedience, then, produces a ragged edge. And there will not be that natural fitting in this construction process that God is utilizing day by day by day so that we can be part of what He wants to do in us and through us, you see, for His glory. Obedience. Obedience to Christ. He wraps up this incredible book. These last two verses spell out his experience. In verse 17, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That fifthly, notice with me our identification with Christ. Do you see the word marks? From the Greek, it's the word stigmata. We get the idea of being stigmatized. But it carries with the idea of being identified with someone. In the time period in which Paul wrote in the Roman Empire, slavery existed. Roman troops would come into new lands, conquer, and then there would be a slave market, of course. There would be owners, and then there would be those who were were to offer submission to the owner. And so often, the means of identification would be this branding, this mocking on the body of the conquered one by the conqueror. What Paul is now doing is that he's communicating in, in their own political experience of what's happening in the Roman Empire as he writes to people in modern-day Turkey. And what he is saying there is that he carries the mockings of his own He may have gone through such trials, such persecutions, and we know about it in Acts 13 and 14 and in his days in Galatia. But nonetheless, those mockings were not so much mere mocks of persecution at the hands of those who were attempting to to minimize his gospel presentation. Those mockings, rather, were mocks of ownership of the one who had given him the basis for this gospel presentation. Notice how he describes this. I bear on my body the mocks of Jesus. And now he takes us back to the one who had nails in his fingers and a spear thrust into his side. Is it any wonder then, he says, let's talk about grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And when I read that, my mind goes back to what I read of Adoniram Judson, who who ministered in Burma and for seven heartbreaking years suffered hunger and privation. And, And during his time there, he was thrown into Ava prison And during that period of roughly 17 months was subjected to incredible torture and mistreatment. And as a result, the rest of his life he carried marks on his body. 
and due to the chains and iron shackles and abuse he had experienced. But listen to this. Upon his release, he asked for permission to go into another province and continue on sharing the gospel. Well, the ruler at that time, an unbeliever, denied his request, but what he said was profound. Quote, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything you might have to say about your Jesus. But I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your Lord. He's been identified. Question. At work? In your neighborhood? Are you identified? What distinguishes you? And when trials seem to have found their way into your, into your sphere of living, Does it seem as though you're using capital letters to be able to proclaim gospel-centered living? When suddenly her solitary cry became one great wail as the entire village started praying to the God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, the wailing slowly turned to a quiet. There was an eerie silence in that muddy, muggy jungle. For slowly as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered the soldiers were gone. And as the elderly woman finishes the story, she tells Pastor that ever since that humid day, The villagers had been waiting, waiting, waiting for someone to come and share the rest of the story about the God who had hung on a cross. And pastors told them about Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. To this day, they are known for Jesus being central to their orbit. Is he to you? Thank you for studying Galatians with me. Let's stand together. Now again, Father, I want to pray for each and every one within these families throughout this incredible congregation who find themselves struggling with various unexpected and unwanted challenges and trials. While we pray that the medical personnel will be given great wisdom by you, we pray and process, Father, that those of us that have kept Christ and want to keep Christ central to our orbit, we in turn use this as tremendous opportunity to spread gospel of the one who hung on that cross. Our great physician who died in our place.
whom deserves all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.